Good morning. Many years ago, my wife and I went into a store in Spokane, Washington. It was early Monday morning. And while we were in the store, we noticed that the music over the PA system was playing Christian music. Now, I don't know about you, I've been in a lot of stores where I don't get played, I don't have Christian music played to me. And my wife and I, as we were shopping, we commented about it. We didn't buy anything that day, but as we were going out the store, I went up to the owner and I said, I want to let you know I really appreciate the fact that you're playing Christian music in your, in your store. He looked at us and he said, are you Christians? And I said, yes, we are Christians. And he says, what church do you go to? Oh, man. I am a Seventh-day Adventist. He says, I see, I've got it. He says, you're saved by the law. He says, I'm saved by grace. I was praying. It was one of those Nehemiah prayers that was going up real fast. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I need something here. And I looked at this, yeah, this man, he was probably in his 40s. I, I said, sir... I said, since it is, you believe that I'm saved by works or by the law and you're saved by grace, could you please explain to me how you were saved by grace? It was very quiet. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. It seemed to me that minutes went by. He looked at us and he said, I don't really know how I'm saved by grace. And he says, tell me, how am I saved by grace? <laughs> now I'd like to ask you, if you were in my shoes, what would you have said to that gentleman? I'm not in a hurry this morning, I want you to think. If you were in my shoes, what would you have said to that gentleman? <laughs> I, spent, I spent a few moments and I, um, I told him how he was saved by grace. And at the end, he had tears in his eyes and he said, that is the most beautiful thing I ever heard. That was an opportunity. You know why I was able to answer his question? By God's grace. <laughs> but secondly, because when I joined the church, I didn't know what it meant to be saved by grace. I've heard sermons on it. I've heard illustrations after illustration. And I would still sit there and shake my head and go, I just don't get it. I guess I'm just like a lump on a log. I had one man in a sermon, bless his heart, I don't know, he talked about somebody falling out of a boat and somebody throwing out a life preserver with a rope on it, and he said, that's grace. And I'm just going, I don't get it. How does it work in my life in a very practical way so I can make sense of it? 
You know, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, he talks, most of you, how many of you are familiar with that book? Okay, so I have a little bit, you have a background. You realize that in this book, he names the people in the book according to their characters. And in one part of the book, there's a man called Faithful, and he lives up to his name. He's very faithful. He's on his way to the celestial kingdom. And Faithful runs into this guy called Mr. Talkative. And he's also going to the celestial kingdom. And as they're walking along, he's finding out that Mr. Talkative talks a lot about almost everything. And he discovers that Talkative is from the town called Pratting Row. Well, he thinks about it for a while, and he says, you know what, Talkative is like so many Christians that we have today who talk about all kinds of things, but it's not in it. there's no power in their life. It's missing. They're empty inside. They have an intellectual knowledge about God, but not a power of God. And so Faithful went up to Talkative and he asked him a very profound question. And I'm going to read it to you. Here's what Faithful asked Talkative. How doth the saving grace of God discover itself in the heart of a man? How does the grace of God discover itself in the heart of a man? If you like myself, I have the, the dramatized version at home where you can listen to it. They word it this way. What is the grace of God and how is it revealed in the life? What is the grace of God and how is it revealed in the life? You know, my neighbor lives next door to me. He's a Christian, goes to a non-denominational church. And I was doing some work in his garage, and he came out, and we started talking, and um, he started talking about God's grace, and I said, what is God's grace? First answer, it's always God's favor. Second answer, it's God's kindness. And then, in my logical mind, I have to say, how are you saved by God's kindness? And that's what I asked my neighbor. You know, he, he told me it was God's kindness. I said, well, please explain to me how God saved you by his kindness. And that's where the conversation ended. I'm trying to break it down into something simple. First of all, let's find out what grace is. I want to give you one example. And then we're going to talk about the definition of grace, both in the Greek and the Hebrew. But the example I'd like to give you, most of you are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned, that the light of God's glory left them, and they, were, they became ashamed and they were terrified, and they ran and they hid into the deep recesses of the Garden of Eden, hiding from God, full of guilt and shame. And then pretty soon God comes along, and they're up there back there trembling and hiding and God is saying, Adam, where art thou? Now I don't think that God's ignorant. Adam, where art thou? 
First definition of grace is God seeking us out. It's God doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. Adam and Eve, without any divine intervention, would have never sought out God. They would have never searched out God. But here comes God, the shepherd, looking for his lost lambs. He's out there calling, Adam, where art thou? And then after he calls, he gives them the gospel message. Man without any divine influence would never seek out God. I want you to mark that well. Without a divine influence, you would never seek out God. Isn't that a wonderful thing that he seeks us out? Yeah. Praise his name. But now let's take a look at the definitions of the word grace. The first one comes to us from Strong's Concordance. You can look it up when you get home. I really like it. Very good definition. It is a divine influence upon the heart. A divine in This is from the, from the Strong Concordance. I thought this was a whole sermon in itself. Divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. And its reflection in the life. Isn't that beautiful? God moves upon your heart and if you respond... Something in your life drastically going to change. Thayer's Greek definition, and I'm going to read it slowly, because I asked you earlier, how does the grace of God, how does the kindness of God work out your salvation? Listen to what he says. The merciful kindness by which God is exerting his holy influence upon souls. The merciful kindness by which God is exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases them in their Christian faith, in the knowledge of God, in their affliction, and, kind, and kindles in them the exercise Christian virtues. Now that was a lot. I said a lot here. The grace of God is what strengthens you Leads you to Christ. Romans 2.4, it says the goodness of God does what? It leads you to repentance. What does? The goodness of God. That's grace. How was I saved by grace? God started working on my heart. I start responding. And as I respond, it leads me to the cross. And not only at the cross, God's grace shows me how weak and how insufficient I really am without him. You know, when the man in the parable of the public and the Pharisee, he came to the, he came to the temple and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That was a work of grace. He didn't come up on that his own. He, that's, God did that. But evidently, the Pharisee wasn't responding to God's grace which represents a large portion of Christianity today. They haven't been touched or haven't been allowed for God to touch their hearts in such a way is that they can get on their knees and they say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a work of grace. I want to read this definition one more time. The merciful kindness by which God is exerting his holy influence 
upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles in them to exercise of the Christian virtues. That's wonderful. Every desire for truth and purity, every desire for truth and purity comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And I can attest to you of my own self, I would never be able to do that. It is only Christ who can implant in us a new heart. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will do what? I will draw all men unto myself. Who does the drawing? God does. You don't do any drawing. You respond to his goodness. Philippians 2.13, it says, for God does what? God works what? How many of you remember this text? God works in us the will and to do of his good pleasure. I could reword that text and say, well, I work it in myself. And you say, no, it doesn't work that way. That's grace. Grace is God working in you the will and to do of his good pleasure. And you work out, if you respond to his love, then you work out what he works in. Jesus says, my father works and I work hither too. There's a work for us to do. That's God's wonderful grace. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were not able to think one righteous thought? Can you imagine that? That you weren't able to do one good thing? What would be the result? I'm going to give you another illustration. We talked about Adam and Eve. But there is another illustration I'd like to share with you. In the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 3. You know, there's a day and age where I'd say, please open your Bibles to such and such page. I can't do that anymore. Now I have to say, open up your electronic device to such and such place. So open up whatever you have this morning to Genesis chapter 3, chapter 6, verse 3. Genesis chapter 6, verse And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, and yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. We're saying that grace is a holy influence upon the heart. And now God is talking about a hundred and twenty year period, a hundred and twenty years, where he says that he is Holy Spirit is going to strive with the hearts of men. 
What do you think it means to strive, to plead, to intervene for 120 years? And after 120 years, Jesus is going to say, it is enough. The door is closed. My spirit will not always strive with man. It was Christ who spoke to the inhabitants of the old world. If you need a text for that, it's um, 2 Peter verse 1, 10 and 11. It was Christ who spoke through Noah. The same Christ of the New Testament and the Old Testament. The same love exerting his grace upon the hearts of men. He gave a message of warning and a message of invitation. Noah stood amidst the tempest, a tempest. A power attended his words. Christ was speaking to their hearts. And some of the people almost got on the ark. They almost got on the ark. Their hearts were convicted. They knew that Noah was preaching the truth. The Holy Spirit was working through the grace of God. And but because of the, the, the ridicule, the ridicule of the people, they would not take a stand. All of us like to be liked. Whoever wants to stand out to be different than everybody else, that's not fun. And so they resisted the plea of God because they didn't want to be different. They didn't want to stick out in a crowd. They didn't want to be mocked and laughed at. Nobody likes that. And so they traded the goodness of God for the world. They almost got on the ark. But almost is not enough. After 120 years, what do you think happened? The door closed. What's that? The door closed. The door closed. What happened to the people? Oh. You want to take a look and see what the record says? Let's take a look. And somebody, I think what you're saying is true. Here is what the record says. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What kind of a God do we see here? Angry? No. Sad. Grieving God. After 120 years, and I can't even know, I don't even know how to say this. I wish I was really, my words are really adequate and beautiful, but I'm just not that way. It's a, I can't imagine what it would be like 
to push out the love of God out of your heart and your life to such a extent that you can only think evil continually. I can't imagine what it would be like for me to be God and looking down on the earth and seeing people abusing each other, raping, murdering, cheating, lying, and for him not to have a tear or two. Out of love, he destroys them. They weren't even good to themselves anymore. They weren't good to each other. And he's not going to sit by and watch it. I don't think that'd be very merciful to allow it to continue to go and go and go. It says the wickedness was great. The wickedness was great and the imagination of their heart was evil continually. I can't even imagine that. It was stated that God was grieved in his heart. How can we understand this type of grief? How many of you have had grief? How many of you can you understand a God who is a God, only the God of love, but the God who is the source of love having this kind of grief? That was, this is his creation. These are his sons and his daughters. These are the people that were supposed to reflect his glory to the world. And now he has to do this strange act. Something that God, and I thought about this, and I don't want to speculate, but I just wonder if God's ever had to destroy in his whole life. Whatever that is. You know, I just... There comes a time, because of sin, where God has to do something that's very strange to himself. And that's destroy. I was reading a story the other day in a, an article that I printed off the internet and the gentleman that wrote it said that if you were to walk into a primitive village noisy, noisy out there if you were to walk into a primitive village and you were to see a scene where a bunch of teenagers were holding down another teenager and there was a man standing there with a saw cutting off the boy's leg, what would you think? But then after you calmed down, you made a few inquiries, you find out that the boy has an infection in his leg that's going to spread to his whole body. They have no medication. They have no anesthesia. And the father who was running the saw was a physician. Now what do you think? We need more information, folks. We really do. We need all the information. God is not a tyrant. That leg had to come off. The antediluvians were no good to anybody or not even to themselves. And what did God do? He pled with them for 120 years. 120 years.
I'm going to read a statement, and I'm going to read it slow. It's from the book Education, page 263. It says, Few give thought to the suffering that sin caused our Creator. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but the suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. When there came upon Israel the calamities that were a sure result of their separation of God, subjugation by their enemies, cruelty and death, it is said in Judges 10 verse 16, talking of God, his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Isaiah 63 verse 9, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. Then it goes on, it says, His Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. As the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, the heart of the infinite God is pained in sympathy. So what does God do to those who have sinned for 120 years? Those who have pushed the grace of God out of their hearts and out of their minds? He has to do what he needs to do. It's the only thing he can do. And I'm glad that I'm not God. Did you notice it said that it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart? That always bothered me because I thought, well, how can God repent? You know, I repent because I see the sinfulness in my heart. I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I saw you showed it to me, and I, 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 I repent and I go another direction. What does it mean when God repents? It's real close. It's just a little different. It means he goes another direction. His direction was to take these people and make them a great nation, a mighty people, that was his first plan. That's plan A. And plan B was God said, I repented. Now I have to have another plan. We're going to start over. And so he takes a few from the family of Noah and begins all over again. In Matthew 24, verses 37 and 39... It says, But as in the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that before the flood they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall it also be at the coming of the Son of Man.
So here we have an illustration of talking about God's grace and how it saves us. He shines his light into our hearts. He shines it into our minds. He says, this is the way, walk ye in it. He does it because he loves us. He doesn't want anybody to get to the point where they're thinking evil continually. That's not his plan. That is what he's trying to avoid at an infinite cost. Just before the second coming of Christ, people are going to be self-absorbed in the things of this world. They don't have time for God. Pushing the grace of God out of their lives, slowly, step by step. Every ray of light that they've been given, they've neglected or they have not heeded. And here's my appeal. How much did it cost for God to bring you grace? How much did it cost? It cost everything. It cost absolutely everything for God. How do we respond to God's light when he gives it to us? I don't want to be negative, but I do want to bring up something that I think is important because I've been in the Adventist church a long time. I'm a convert from the outside. But when I came in the Adventist church, I found out most people weren't even living the things I was reading. Very heartbreaking. They have tons of light, but aren't doing it. What does that say about God's grace? The cost of God's grace. He says, I've died for you. I've given everything for you so you can have this light. Do you say, oh, thank you, God, that you've given me all this light. I appreciate it. Is that your response? Is that your response this morning? That you're very thankful for the light that God has been giving you? That you can't wait to drink more of it down? That you can't wait to get up tomorrow morning and take some more of it into your heart and your life? Get excited? I was just telling my wife on the way to church this morning, this is certainly not bragging because it's all of grace, is it's hard for me to put my Bible down. There's so much exciting, so much exciting things in there that he wants to show us. In John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, I'm going to use for closing. This is Jesus' appeal, not mine. Jesus' appeal. I'm going to start at verse 19. John chapter 3. And this is the condemnation that light. Now I'm put, and my mind notes I have these brackets and I have grace. Grace. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light 
and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Ah, but he that doeth the truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. How many of you say amen? Amen. amen. I want to be standing in the love of God. I want to be that one leopard out of those ten that came back and says, Thank you, Lord, for curing me of my leprosy. I'm so thankful. And my skin's not rotting anymore. I can go back to my family. We can be together again. Man, there were nine of them never showed up. They had the same privilege, the same opportunities, and they weren't thankful. Setting in the church doesn't make us safe. I'm going to guarantee you that. You can sit in this church and it doesn't make you safe. I remember I heard a sermon by a pastor. He called it, the name of his sermon was Lost in the Church. That was a good sermon too. He stepped all over my toes. Um, lost in the church. As we're singing Amazing Grace, we're going to be singing verses 1 and 2 and 5. I want you to be thinking about the words because a couple weeks ago I sat down and actually wrote these words out and I asked myself, is this my experience? Page 108. 